0: Hello everyone and uh, welcome to the podcast of the IP vertical of the Jindal Digest for Competition and Innovation Laws. Today we have with us Mr. Gaurav Mishra. Mr. Mishra is presently an IP attorney at Banana IP Councils where he has been working since 2015 and is primarily involved in developing strategic engagements with IP firms around the globe. He completed his LLB from Karnataka State Law University and did his post-graduation in IP Law from National Law School of India University, Bangalore. Thank you, sir, for taking out the time to speak to us today. The topic that we will be discussing today is the recent abolishment of the Intellectual Property Appellate Board, that is the IPAB, by the Tribunal's Reforms, Rationalization and Conditions of Service Ordinance 2021. The decision of abolishing a specialized tribunal for IPR matters has been a controversial one and it has invited a lot of debate. Uh, we would like to start with hearing your insights on the merits of the decision. In particular, whether the decision was overdue in light of the structural issues like infra- insufficient infrastructure, irregular appointments, and vacancies for extended periods of time, as was characterized in the IPIP.
1: Yeah, so you're right in pointing out that there is definitely a debate uh, involving this. You know, there is a group that believes that the IPAB should not have been resolved. And uh, in fact, even the justices who've uh, actually chaired the IPAB for that matter have a difference of opinion. While uh, Justice Manmohan Singh, who was the you know, incumbent uh, chairperson, he was not really in the favor of dissolution of IPAB. Uh, while on the other hand, a former chairperson, uh, Justice Prabhas Devan, was actually quite uh, elated when uh, this news came about So, there is definitely a split within the IP fraternity on whether or not the IPAB should have been dissolved. So, at least in this conversation, I think I would just play the devil's advocate. And uh, rather than putting out vocal opinions about what I believe, I think let's just try and understand about the IPAB, you know, uh, and then let the audience decide for themselves. So, the first thing as you asked me, uh, was this decision overdue? So decision on the IPAB's eventuality was, I would say definitely overdue, right? Uh, There's no question regarding that. Now the setting up of IPAB in 2003, in my view was actually a very good idea, to be honest. But the execution of that idea turned out to be very poor. So you know, the original idea was actually to create a body which could reduce the burden on courts, one that could decide cases quickly and efficiently. But this obviously did not happen uh, with IPAB as was expected. So when the IPAB was being set up, it was actually a very conscious decision. Uh, They wanted to bring the best of experts in the field of IPRs, you know, because the technical members of that tribunal could help in adjudicating the technical and complicated scientific matters like for patents for instance so and these technical members would then team up with experienced high court judges so this was actually a fantastic combination and it should have worked but it did not you know evidently and i actually strongly believe that we can't place the blame squarely on ipab for its uh, inefficiencies for lack of a better word I would rather in fact actually blame the consecutive governments, you know, uh, who failed to give this institution an efficient structure. When I say structure, I'm actually talking about every aspect of the tribunal and its functioning. So the problem with IPAB's functioning weren't uh, recent or new. These have been around ever since the IPAB actually first came into existence. Uh, In fact, in 2011, so as I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, Justice Prabha Devan was the chairperson of IPAB then. So she had filed a report with the Madras High Court stating how the government was actually apathetic towards the functioning of the IPAB. Now since then, there have obviously been calls to do away with IPAB. right? In fact, it was just about uh, two years ago, I remember, when I was uh, and it was an urgent need to look up for IPB cases. And every time you would click on the website, it will actually take you to this railway booking portal. So I mean, if if you weren't able to really maintain something as simple as a website, right? And and uh, that is just one small aspect. The most severe aspects of it is the IPB actually, uh, in fact, even up until its dissolution, probably had some 3,000 cases which were pending. Cases which were as old as 10 to 12 years, vacancies. Now that is one of probably the most critical ones. So the the, the actual impediment in the IPB's functioning was the vacancies that were left behind. So before Justice Mamon Singh took over, there there was about a two two and a half year gap, right? And there was no chairperson, so the IPAB was not really setting up any uh, events or setting up any meetings. It was not hearing any cases then the severe underfunding which the government obviously uh, had to tackle but it didn't then qualified technical members were not available you know there were a lot of lot of issues with the ipv but yeah at this point i think what i would want to say is that you can't deny that the ipv actually did deliver some quality judgments these actually not only really help litigants they sped up you know the delivery of justice some of these uh, IPB decisions were actually quite helpful in streamlining the uh, work at patent offices and the trademark offices but considering all of this I you know actually see that uh, the IPAB sort of made out a case for itself it turned out to be more of a liability than an asset so I think that should probably answer this question. That was this decision overdue? A simple statement is yes. And whether IPAB had to be dissolved? Most likely so. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. right. Um, yeah, thank you for that, sir. So, um, I think like moving on to the next question, the independence of the IPAB has also been a subject of debate on account of the executives' influence in the appointment process and concerns over an in- inherent institutional bias. And I also think I read somewhere that there was a bias in the decision of the Novartis case, which is a really famous case. So, my question to you is do you think that the IPAB was functioning as an independent and impartial body? Uh, So, Vivek, I think the straightaway answer to this question is a big no, right? The IPAB could never function as an independent body. Uh, And this probably is perhaps one of the many reasons for its uh, inefficiency. So, the IPAB's functioning was actually largely dependent. Uh, Not largely, in fact, I should say completely dependent on the government. For example, the positions or vacancies in the IPAB had to be filled up by the government. And you know, the government was actually struggling quite immensely to find competent persons who were willing to accept these positions on the board. You know, actually uh, at this point, I think I should say that it's not just the IPAB. Tribunals in general have been the subject of intense debate, right? And they've had serious questions on their independence from the executive. The IPAB was actually uh, no stranger to this. Uh, in fact i think uh, this was back in 2015 uh, or 2018 when the ipab's constitutionality was also challenged so the ipb yeah true the first thing is it was definitely never free from the executive the executive i would say was the ipb was an extension and it was not an independent body as such now when we speak about tribunals like for example such as the ipab You know, since the 1980s tribunalization had actually become India's preferred approach. There was a tribunal for almost anything and everything. This sort of changed in 2015 when the government first started uh, thinking about rationalizing tribunals and then eventually I think in 2017 they decided to shut down certain tribunals. Now the problem is not just with IPAV. When you speak about the uh, independence from the executive, tribunals in general do not enjoy this independence from the executive. In fact, even with the IPAB, you know, several appointments to the post of technical members, the vice persons, they were basically bureaucrats, uh, people from the civil services or from trademark registry, patent office. None of them really had experience of practicing law, you know, before the court, or for that matter, I never had judicial offices. And at least as far as when I speak about IPB or intellectual property in India, this is a very fundamental problem. You know, even with the patent office, we deal with this day in and day out. So the patent office obviously has a composition of, uh, you know, examiners and controllers. Now, the problem that we are actually facing these days is they've hired you know uh, people with technical understanding and technical knowledge to be examiners. Great. The problem occurs when we receive these examination reports and you realize you know what the examiner probably does not know the legal aspect. He's good. He will tell you what your invention is and why it's lacking in novelty, why it's not lacking uh, you know the inventor step requirement, but some very basic simple questions of law of evidences for that matter the examiner gives you an opinion which is actually sort of uh flawed when i say uh, you know it's very flawed in the concept of law and patents are very i mean obviously you define patents are techno legal in nature so ipab for that matter was also pretty much similar in that respect you know because you had to have a technical member for copyrights trademarks and the other acts which uh, the IPB was uh, monitoring everything was fine I mean you would not require the kind of technical skills as somebody would require for patents and that again was a problem you did not find technical experts who could be members of the board you know their qualifications were bad so in fact the IPB went on functioning without without a chairperson for some time and without the presence of a technical member so you, your quorum you know could never be built when you're speaking about these disposal mechanisms for uh, ipab so i think to in, to conclude ipab could really never function independently and that i believe was truly the fault of the governments that were in power because it's very important for you to separate such tribunals from an executive point of view, right? You don't want that interference to happen. And as uh, you did point out, Vivek, about the bias in the Novartis case, yes, there certainly was. In fact, um. For I mean, I, I do not want to. Uh, call names right now, but. Yes, so uh, you know there have been. Instances in the past where uh, the. Uh, integrity of the board has been questioned uh, due to the acts by certain of its members. So I think, yeah, to, to to conclude I would say that the IPAB certainly never really enjoyed that independence and there was definitely an inherent bias which was, which actually plagued IPAB.
0: Thank I hope you, that
1: that answers, yeah.
0: Yes sir, that does answer. So uh, sort of keeping in mind whatever you said, I, we feel like it's also interesting to look it at from the international law perspective. Uh, so in 2016, the national IPR policy sort of claimed that we are going to comply with all international uh, obligations that's on India. And one of that obligation is uh, complying with the TRIPS agreement. And TRIPS does prescribe to create a separate uh, adjudicating body to deal with IPR matters. And many of the signatories to trips like uh, Singapore and UK have complied with this requirement. So how do you think this would now, like the abolishment of IPAB, how do you think it would impact uh, India from an international law perspective?
1: Uh, That's a a really nice question. So uh, when we speak about the international uh, law point of view on uh, the IPAB, right? uh, I I don't really see any major implications whatsoever. Now, the reason behind that is because while the TRIPS actually says uh, that, you know, you need to have mechanisms or adjudicatory bodies, it does not speak about, it does not mandate the creation of separate tribunals. Article 3 speaks about, you know, uh, broadly enforcing IPRs and how you need to have a framework which is aimed at judicious and expeditious disposal of cases that i think is something that we need to underline when we say quick disposal of cases was maybe actually really disposing of these cases quickly or was it clogging and you know creating a bottleneck you probably address these uh, questions if uh, they come through from the law perspective of international law and the policies that we have You know, both the national IPR policy and the TRIPS agreement. Actually speak about a system where the IPR enforcement is strong. Right, and disputes relating to the IPR matters are settled quickly and obviously at low cost so that uh, it's beneficial to the litigants. I whether the IPB was actually a good example of this. I sort of disagree. You know, almost all important IPR disputes did eventually make uh, end up with the courts. So it did not really enable quick disposals. I would say that in fact actually became a bottleneck for IPR matters, you know. uh, When the IPB was first set up. Which were pending before the courts were actually very small, you know, but then this erratic functioning of the IPB started. And, the pendency of cases increased so many folds where you had probably four cases they you know changed to about 400 cases. So I think I, I as I did mention earlier. Before the dissolution there were about 2000 to 3000 cases which were still pending before the IPAB you know and and they were still hearing matters which were as old as 10 to 12 years. So you can imagine what kind of speed of disposal we're talking about. Uh, I think uh, if, if I could put an analogy to this, you know, at, at this rate of disposal, my grandmother could probably walk around the world some four to five times on foot and then come back to find that her revocation petition is still pending with the IPA. Bill. So, yeah, IPA did not really achieve its true objective. You know, I think the true compliance of trips uh, and realization of these objectives of the IPA policy—it's—it's it's only possible by removing the IPAB from the equation, or you set up the IPAB again on the lines of some of these—you uh, know—specialized tribunals or courts. Like you—you you have the U.S. Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And there are certain special IP codes which have been set up in Germany, Europe, and China, for that matter. So these are some very good jurisdictions to learn from. And, then and the dissolution of IPAB, if this dissolution that has happened leads to the establishment of special IP codes uh, within the commercial court systems of high court. I think it will actually help in strengthening the IP protection and enforcement mechanisms here in India. This, in fact, actually pretty much aligns with uh, you know the National IP Policy of 2016. More than retaining IPAB in the state it was before the dissolution. So, from an international law point of view, there is certainly not much in terms of effect. Yeah, I mean you 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 will probably have a lot of people who will argue that uh, you know a lot of foreign applicants because about 60 to 70% of our applications which are filed in India Mm -hmm. originate outside of India. So these are essentially foreign applicants. So a lot of people might say that you know this. There's a fact that you have taken these from the IPAB and moved them to the court would not be seen as favorable, especially for foreign industries or foreign applicants. But you know, as I as I did mention earlier, the IPAB sort of stopped uh, quick disposal of cases because. You know, I, as I did mention, 10 to 12 years is a long time. A patent's term is 20 years. And if you have matters which are pending for 10 to 12 years, add that to the fact that a patent is granted after around four to five years. So I mean, you've lost on effectively 17-18 years before you actually hear some sort of a final decision that is a limitation to a lot of foreign investors also because when when somebody wants to file a patent they want to get it early right if tomorrow i go and file a uh, let's say a opposition or a patent revocation then that is not going to get uh, you know disposed of immediately it's going to take me about 10 to 12 years And as a consequence of that, I am sort of limited from commercializing my invention. I can't find suitable players or uh, buyers in the market. I go to them and I offer to them my invention and say, you know what, this is what I have. And everybody obviously does a due diligence. And they're going to ask you uh, what the status of the application is. And you say it's under opposition. So why would, you know, somebody want to buy something from you, which is, dispute so i is actually in that way sort of retarded the functions of uh you know the the quick disposal of cases yeah Yeah, so so the international law will actually certainly not uh, yeah it really would not have any effect on the ipv uh i mean on the general perception is what i believe but having said that obviously uh there is a certainly a need to come up with some sort of a mechanism, you know, where we are able to dispose of applications quickly.
0: Thank you so much, sir, for taking out the time to talk to us.